It's been really, really cold. And it's temperatures I never thought I'd ever see in Texas. I haven't had one flicker of light since this all began. I haven't had any heat since this started. Dina Kispe is one of the producers on The Take. She sent us these voice notes from her home in Houston, Texas, a city that calls itself the energy capital of the world, but where many have had no power for most of this week. I grew up here. I've spent most of my life here. It's never been 10 degrees Fahrenheit here, which is like minus 12 Celsius. Earlier this week, Texas was hit with massive snowstorms, and the state is seeing historically low temperatures. Here in Texas, residents are experiencing some of the worst winter weather of their lives. Two major storms hitting the state in the last five days and another one on the way. And the crisis has left millions of people without water, lights, or heat. Record-breaking cold temperatures have left millions without power and claimed more lives yesterday. At least 30 deaths have been reported. Texas has seen the most fatalities as two million homes and businesses there are still without power. I've honestly been struggling a lot to stay warm these last few days. I had three pairs of socks on and I was snuggled up under four thick blankets and I was still not warm. And I just couldn't figure out what do people do in a situation like this. The emergency in Texas is happening right as some climate activists in the U.S. are celebrating the country's re-entry today into the Paris Climate Accord, a historic international agreement that aims to limit global emissions. And it seems that united action on climate change is more important now than ever before. Because even after a year of grounded flights and limited travel, global emissions are barely lower than they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. And the disastrous effects are clear, not just in the U.S., but around the world. In California, fire season is no longer just a season, it's constant. As Florence was closing in on the Carolina coast this week, the size of the threat it posed rekindled the discussion about the role of climate change in today's weather. Scientists say the Arctic has been warming up for years. The result, warmer oceans fueling extreme weather events. All of this begs the question, is the Paris Agreement doing enough to protect the planet? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. When the Paris Accord was adopted in 2015, the world was one degree Celsius hotter than pre-industrial levels. Now it's 1.2, slowly creeping towards the two-degree marker that environmental scientists warned would be disastrous. Today, We're talking to two people who agree that climate change is real and dangerous, but disagree on how to stop it. Climate activist Kofi Mawuli-Klu says so far, governments have been going about it the wrong way. There's a lot of media attention on these useless delegates. So, you know, talk, the, the usual greenwash talk out of which we know very little action will come. Why not focus more attention on the actual resistance of communities across the world. 
Dr. Richard Munang, meanwhile, is part of the system that works with international delegates. I'm Richard Munang, and I'm the UN Environment Program Africa Regional Climate Change Coordinator. On a daily basis, Dr. Munang guides countries to integrate climate change into their development strategies in order to limit Earth's warming temperature. I asked him what that picture would look like if they fail. It will be a world where what you are seeing now is just a tip of the iceberg. Floodings of homes, schools and hospitals, cyclones displacing people to seek sanctuaries in places not their own, environmental refugees in numbers never ever seen, droughts and floods, crop failure and plunging food prices to levels never ever seen before. It will become an uninhabitable planet that will live in suffering throughout. If we think we're seeing cyclones now, or hurricanes, or droughts, or floods, it's just a tip of the iceberg. So back in 2015, world leaders gathered in France for a conference that resulted in a historic commitment to combat climate change, known as the Paris Climate Agreement. What were the main goals of that conference? And what progress have we seen in the six years since it was signed? The intent was to ensure that the world temperature was kept below 2 degrees and even more importantly below 1.5 degrees. What made that conference successful was the signing of the Paris Climate Change Agreement by the 195 countries. But one of those players who was there for that conference, the U.S., wasn't part of the agreement for almost four of those years, and it's one of the largest contributors of climate change. Do you remember what you thought in 2017 when the U.S. left the agreement? Well, that was sad news. The emissions that are emitted in the United States doesn't only remain in the space of the United States. It upsets the entire climate system of the entire world. Emissions that are emitted in China does the same or in Europe, that was the same. What does that mean? It then means that a collective approach to solve this is needed. And how do you solve that? By bringing countries together. But putting it in perspective, when the United States left, the process took years. So there was a political statement for them to leave, but there are principles and procedures that take years before they can formally leave. And now that they've formalized it in November, now they are going back. So it means in reality, it's just a few months that they've actually been out of the agreement. Wow. And that is good news that they are coming back. That's fascinating. Yes. And another aspect is that the EU actually passed what was called the Green Deal, aiming to be able to reduce emissions, to become a net zero emission continent by 2050. South Korea, Japan, China ratcheted up the ambition So other countries step up and fill the void. And so in reality, was it a good thing for the United States to pull out whether through a political statement? No. Is it good news they're coming back? Absolutely. In 2018, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that there were 12 years to limit a climate change catastrophe, and now we're down to nine. So... What do you say to those who say the Paris Agreement wasn't drastic enough to actually protect us? 
what we need to really be talking about is ambition in terms of implementation. The reason why we are still where we are today is because the ambition in terms of commitment doesn't match the ambition in terms of implementation. But the good news is that as you look across the world, actions are being taken by the private sector, by businesses, by individual citizens, by cities, and by young people who are developing innovations in clean energy solutions. Even though the United States was not active in driving from a national level the Climate uh, Paris Agreement implementation, at the local levels there were more than 4,000 American cities, businessmen and women, individual citizens taking climate action in their individual capacity. And these constitute over 50% of the entire population of the United States. I wonder, though, then what you make of this heated climate debate that arises when you talk about individual actions versus big business and governments who enable big business. Because even if every one of us recycles and tries to cut our carbon emissions, at the end of the day, they don't matter compared to a corporation who is allowed to pollute. So where do you strike that balance between realizing that so much of this battle against climate change is local, but it can't happen without the buy-in of international bodies? Yeah, that's a very important question. And I think the Paris Climate Change Agreement becomes very crucial because that is a global policy, so to speak. And that means if there are corporations investing in any country, they definitely have to align with the law because the ratification of this becomes a climate policy in the country. And Dr. Monang says once corporations are forced to abide by climate goals, they'll find that the strategy is also economically sound. As we're speaking today, the cost of solar actually has dropped and investment in solar across the world is actually increasing. If you take the continent of Africa today, leveraging solar uh, systems will be able to provide electricity to over 620 million citizens who are energy impoverished. So good climate policy is good economic policy. Dr. Monong talks about the possibilities of renewable energy, but in most parts of the world, that's far from reality right now. And the climate emergency in Texas serves as a good reminder that the system that we have, even in so-called developed countries, is not working equitably. Here's Dina again. The other night when I was driving around, I was paying a lot more attention to what streets and what buildings had power than I ever have paid attention to. And I noticed a number of office buildings, deserted office buildings, with complete power. I mean, you're seeing empty offices with lights, and it's not just one or two, you can see like dozens of them. Why is it that an office building that's unoccupied, unused, completely lit up with electricity, but then not even just across the street, there are apartment buildings that have elderly and families with children and babies that don't have anything and haven't had anything. How does that work? How does someone determine who gets power and who doesn't? How do you decide who gets heat and who doesn't? Scientists are debating how definitively the situation in Texas is linked to climate change. But it is undoubtedly an extreme weather event, unusual for this area of the world. Texas is one of the warmest states in the U.S., and now it's experiencing blizzards. 
And since its infrastructure wasn't prepared for snow, the weather shift has rendered much of the state's energy sources frozen. People are left cold, in the dark, and without water. I've seen a lot of hurricanes. I've seen some snow here and there, but it was never like this. And without big changes, we could see emergencies like this become more regular. That's what activist Kofi Mwali Clue from the start of this episode has been saying for a while now. We have not seen much progress. We get, you know, a lot of fiddling while literally the planet is burning. We're not seeing the appropriate actions that need to be taken to reverse these tendencies. Kofi is part of the climate action group Extinction Rebellion and helps lead its international solidarity network also known as XRISN. You've probably heard of Extinction Rebellion before. It's been in the news a lot for some of its more theatrical protests in the United Kingdom. With Extinction Rebellion members gluing themselves to trains, commuters couldn't understand why public transport had become the latest target. For the police, this has been a long and complex operation, trying to clear London's main roads of protesters. As the name Extinction Rebellion implies, they say the planet is running out of time in the face of undeniable climate change. Kofi thinks the Paris Agreement is weak and ineffective. And he says the politicians who signed it just give lip service to the cause. He calls it greenwashing. We have increasingly a lot of greenwash talk, but in practice we're seeing the huge loss of lives. We're seeing massive destruction of the environment. And shockingly, these governments are planning to do more in collision with their corporate bosses, literally. That is very alarming. In fact, when you take uh, continents like Africa, and I come originally from Ghana in West Africa, these governments are literally criminally misbehaving, signing up more contracts to get fossil fuel extraction, repressing violently protesters. And in fact, the most repugnant thing they do is a few of them go at huge cost to, to their nations, to these conferences, sign all these agreements, they come back home and say absolutely nothing. So the population knows absolutely nothing about these things. So if Kofi says international agreements like the Paris Accord and conferences like COP21, where it was written, are not going to get us out of this climate crisis, then what will? The solution is simply for those who care to connect with each other And I'm not particularly interested in governments listening because I know they refuse to listen because of the vested interests that they've chosen to serve. I am interested in people hearing each other and linking up to amplify each other's voices. For example, in the global north, most people who are in environmental campaign, including members of ECTAR, you know, are completely unaware that the tragedies that Ordinary people are suffering in the global south. Since the Paris Accord was signed, four land and environmental defenders have been murdered every week. Disha Ravi, a climate activist, was arrested in India's Bengaluru city for allegedly spreading a toolkit related to the farmers' protests in the country. 
At least 33 people were killed in the Philippines for defending their land, forests, and rivers. That is our role as the SRS and International Solidarity, facilitate international solidarity, bringing their resistance together to grow into these mighty global waves of rebellion. That is going to force governments and corporations to listen. Mighty global waves of rebellions. That sounds like a pretty lofty goal. Climate activists have, for generations, been working to bend the ear of governments and corporations. Kofi says his group's plan will work where those other ones, by his definition, have failed, because it centers indigenous voices. He says that if they work together, climate groups from around the world will have more power to hold governments and corporations accountable in a way that forces them to act. The protests are about stopping the harm. Communities of resistance in West Africa, you know, the Ewefon Aja communities of the Betol indigenous nation that stretch across the borders of Ghana, Togo, Benin into Nigeria, are unifying now with the Ogoni communities. They are linking with particularly the Maroon communities, the Palenques, the Quilombos in South America. They're connecting with grassroots communities in North America. They're connecting with the Adivasi communities in India and Asia. So this is building up. So Kofi advocates for unity among everyday people by bringing indigenous communities from around the world together. And Dr. Munang operates at the national and governmental level. Two very different approaches. But they agree on one thing. I think that there's no greater challenge that humanity and all life faces today than the climate and ecological crisis. And if we can give it priority attention so that everybody who is trying to do something knows that they can be heard, their actions can be seen and appreciated, and that is how things will change. This is what we're working on right now, and it's exciting. When you have real communities beginning to see the similarities in their situation, then nothing is stopping them. Can everybody be inspired to take climate change as a personal responsibility? What if each and every citizen of the world spoke about climate change as the fierce agency of NAR and do something in his or her capacity? We will be moving in the right direction in a faster way. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve, with me, Malika Bilal, Dina Kispe, Nagin Auliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and Amy Walters. Natalia Aldana manages our social media pages. We're at AJ The Take on Instagram and Twitter. Alex Roldan is our sound designer, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.